New Brunswick doesn't make national news all that often, and the same can be said of their provincial politics. It's much the same. But right now, New Brunswick and its provincial political scene is very much making national headlines. Hi, I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Full Comment Podcast. And before we bring on our next guest, who is in the middle of the political firestorm that is happening in New Brunswick, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to the Full Comment Podcast on any app or device that you're listening on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, uh, Amazon, wherever you're listening, please give us a subscribe, give us a like, leave a review, help spread the word. As I said, New Brunswick is not known for creating national headlines. It's, it's a lovely place to visit. It's a beautiful spot, but it tends to be a bit quieter than what we deal with here in the big smoke, where it seems that Toronto politics and Toronto or, or Ontario-based issues dominate the national discussion. So what is it that has put New Brunswick front and center? It's a change in school policy for the province that says before teachers and school officials are able to change the name or the pronouns of children in their schools, they need to notify the parents. Sounds pretty common sense to most people. In fact, polls show the vast majority of Canadians straight across the country agree with that policy. But it's creating controversy in the government of Blaine Higgs. The Premier has lost at least one member. Things are moving fast, so those numbers may change. And he's facing a revolt as well. What's driving all this? What brought about his decision? And is this a hill he's willing to die on? Blaine Higgs joins me now from Fredericton. Thanks for the time, Premier. You're very welcome, Brian. Take us uh, back to the, the genesis of this school policy. Uh, were you reversing something that was in place already or establishing standards because of directions school boards or school districts were going in? What, what started this? Well, the, the, the policy came in very quietly back in 2020, and it, and it became more evident in the last little while of, of what was actually happening in, in schools. And and it really came to light during a professional development day when some of the agenda items were identified um, that were going to be discussed and, and brought about um, in, in that agenda for that day. Um, so then it started to be the question about, okay, so what, what, is, what are the details around how this is handled within the system? And, and are parents aware, you know, when, when something as significant as gender identity is being discussed, um, for elementary kids um, that, you know, are obviously at very uh, early stages of their life and development and, and you know, have a lot of questions. Um, how do the parents get involved? And what we learned is that, that actually the policy purposely did not have include the parents. So they were excluded from the process. So it kind of, it kind of was on the fundamental that all parents are incapable of managing sensitive issues with their children. And, and I don't think we should dismiss parents uh, and it's such a key time in a child's life. So so that's what started. And then the more that parents became aware of what was happening, then the more traction it got in terms of what, what are we doing about this and why aren't we addressing this and why am I excluded from my child's upbringing? Um, so, so what we wanted to do was improve the process so that we don't put children at risk and, and I, and I, because obviously that is very, very uh, uh, concerning as well. But we also don't exclude parents as just a matter of course. Um, this is an issue that across North America has become a lightning rod. And in some places in the United States, they've gone to the point of uh, when it comes to gender identity or transgendered issues, 
just saying you can't talk about it in schools or banning uh, certain types of materials. You're not going that direction. You're not saying, you know, we're not going to discuss gender identity in schools or you're banned from discussing certain things. Are you? Well, we're not, Brian, in that sense. But it did come to light in terms of, you know, some of the issues around, um, you know, drag story time and and what what kids, um, you know, were learning at very early ages. I mean, even toddlers in some cases uh, in in um, in libraries or in the, in, in the case of kindergarten and schools, but we're not prescribing that. We're we're basically saying if there are challenges and and concerns, then then the last person to find out shouldn't be the parents. And and then how do we protect the child? So obviously we're we're saying what resources do we need to provide so children are protected, and that we have a, a system in place that ultimately um, the child and the parent can have a discussion. Uh, about how they feel. And and we know that there are some parental situations that would be very, very significant and, and there'd be uh, adversarial. And that may apply to a lot of situations the child is facing, nothing to do with gender identity. And we don't want to make that worse or expose the, the kids at all. So, so, but having to talk about this and finding a path forward where, where you know, families continue to play a, a critical role in the foundation that our society cherishes cherishes and not have children become more or less the responsibility of the state with the exclusion of parents. I don't think that's a direction our society um, certainly wants to be in. And I guess I find it really quite uh, surprising in some ways that that questioning the role of a parent in a child's up- upbringing is really a debate. Well, you've been called far right by the prime minister. That's something that uh, people who've met you, covered you, um, as I have, would be quite shocked by. I mean, you, you, you've always seemed to me a very moderate, middle of the road person um, in in my dealings with you. The Globe and Mail, though, um, they didn't go as far as the Prime Minister, but their editorial uh, about a week ago said the headline was the state has a duty to protect trans students, and then. Further down, in relation to what you were just saying, uh, they said, the premier and his supporters are getting things backward. It's the fundamental responsibility of parents to know what is going on with their kids. If they do not, that is their failing, not a teacher's. How do you respond to the Globe and Mail saying that you've got it backwards and that it's a failing of the parents, if not? Well, um, I guess, Brian, if you have a policy that purposely excludes the parents, even to the point that everyone in the school would know this child or their, their child by a, by a different name or a different gender. And even to the point that if it was a, ter- a parent teacher's day, that, that there would be material removed from the classroom that would in any way give um, um, any sort of indication that there was a gender identity uh, difference. If that is the policy, then, then how do you blame that on the parent? if they are purposely excluded from, from the process. So, so what we're seeing, and certainly the, the huge outpouring from parents, is I want to know what's happening in, our, in my school with my child. And, and when but, we but, at- but what do you say to the Globe and Mail when they, they argue that, well, you should know what's going on, and, and, and you're failing as a parent if you don't know, so why should the school tell you? Well, I, I guess, Brian, I would say that that is all reverse 
to what in reality should happen. Because because the how does a parent find out if indeed the school purposely holds information from them? We don't we don't do that with with so many things that require consent. And we're talking children under sixteen years of age here. Um, everything that this happens in the school requires consent. But you can change your identity and your pronoun, and that doesn't require any sort of connection at all. In fact, just the opposite. I, I would say that. In this situation, the, 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 the who's got it wrong would be the, the comments from the Global Mail that parents, uh, it's okay. What they seem to be saying is it's okay for parents not to not to be told the real truth about their children. But what is what is also part of that that I want to qualify? It's necessary to have a process in the system so children are protected, and we have the right people that are engaged with the child so it becomes counselors psychologists, psychiatrists, however it needs to happen. And we don't put that burden on teachers, but we have the right qualifications so that we're sure that the the meetings are held, the child is protected, and at the right time, the parents are engaged so they're part of this child's uh, learning and upbringing. What you're describing to me sounds like you're trying to find a balance between protecting children and not excluding parents. Would, Would you say that's... Brian, that sums it up precisely. So... I mean, you know, you're not going the direction of some American governors, as I said. As far as this policy that you're reversing uh, with 713, how young did it go? There's been a lot of talk of teenagers and that, well, you know, by the time you're 14, 15, you already have the ability to do so many things that uh, don't require parental consent, even within uh, the school setting. How young did this policy go, the one that you're now seeking to reverse well and, and and I would say seeking to clarify and and, and make improvements uh, on it went as, as young as four years old as young as four mm-hmm. with no parental involvement correct you're facing yeah. a a firestorm over this though aren't you you've you've lost yes. one cabinet minister yes um, I am and you know so so um, Brian I'm, I'm a grandfather and I'm a father, and and I when I think of um, I- issues as significant as this, and and life altering issues, you know, that could lead to you know major irreversible changes in in, in an individual that that could in in fact, you know, um, look down the road or t- in ten years or fifteen years and look back and say, well, why did I make irreversible changes to 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 my to my body? Uh, I I just want to be in the process where they have the support they need, and also I think we should we should learn more from what is happening around us, particularly in Europe, and and I think there's a lot of information there of what what kids that have gone through this and where they are now and what what they're looking back on is what they learned or were exposed to and and what help they had or didn't have during the process of of understanding. So, but to say and and I know I've been called just about everything. Um, but to say we can't talk about it and to say we can't have an adult conversation of the role of parents in a child's life, um, you know, it, it's, it's a very hard concept for me to understand that we, we, we think it's okay to remove parents from key, key elements of, of a child's upbringing. I, I find that really disturbing in our society that, that we consider that okay. You, you deal with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on a regular basis on a number of, of files 
you're of different political stripes, but you've come to agreements on on healthcare, on childcare, on on various issues. How did it feel hearing him go to an event and say, "quote Far right political actors are trying to outdo themselves with the types of cruelty and isolation they can inflict on these already vulnerable people." Right now, trans kids in New Brunswick are being told they don't have the right to be themselves, that they need to ask permission, while trans kids need to feel safe, not targeted by politicians. End quote. He he called you far right. He said you were targeting children. How do you have a have you had a conversation with the prime minister since then? How do you how do you deal with him when he's using language like that to describe you? Well, obviously, Brian, it's it's extremely disappointing. These not only is this a provincial jurisdiction, but for for the prime minister to make a statement like that um, at a time maybe he, he's trying to deflect from some of the other issues that we have in our country and the challenges we're facing as a country, but to to use this as a um, kind of a a, a political kind of a volley, and 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 in the same vein dismissing the role of parents, and in this case in New Brunswick and the concerns they have. See, you, you can't do one without the other. You, 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 we need to protect, so we need to do both. That's where the balance comes in. You, you need to protect the child, but you also need to ensure that parents have a responsibility. And parents don't take the responsibility lightly. And I think that's commendable because we need them to be engaged. So I'm extremely disappointed that the prime minister believes that that's not necessary. When I've been in discussions with people about this, they always come up with the, well, we shouldn't tell parents because kids aren't safe at home. And my issue with that is that it assumes that every parent is an abusive parent, that parents will not respond with love. I've talked to various people who have had to, uh, at different stages of their life, come out to their parents and no matter how loving the parents are, it's a stressful situation for uh, the people I've talked to. Uh, but most, the vast majority of them have experienced love and acceptance. And the supporters of this policy run with the accusation that the child's life will be in danger, that the parent may murder them. I don't think that that is a realistic view of parents. I think it's an insulting view of parents. Uh, I'd like your reaction to that. Well, I feel the same way. And, and certainly when, when I looked, um, we got deeper into this policy, it, it actually did take that premise that, that all parents are, are incapable of, of working through tough issues with their kids. And, and so I, I take the opposite view and say, no, no, I believe all parents love their children and all parents want the best for their children. And, and whatever the difficult situation may be, parents want to be in the middle to help and protect. And so, the, yes, there will be cases, and, and I w- won't deny that. There will be cases where the life at home uh, may not be conducive to, to bringing in something as significant as gender identity and how will parents manage that. That's why we say very clearly, if that situation exists at home, first of all, we should know that through our network of this child coming to school on a regular basis and the challenges they're facing at home. So that wouldn't be a complete unknown. But to ensure that that would be recognized, the conditions at home, we would have these 
counselors in the middle of this so that we would be sure the individual, the child would be protected and would not be put in a position that would, would endanger them in any way, shape or form. So, so we, can, we can strike this balance, but there has to be a recognition that parents are needed to, to be part of a child's life in order for them to develop and grow and, and, and then move into the future with the responsibilities that they've learned uh, from home and adults and, and be part of that societal uh, support system. So there's, a, there's an opportunity here to, to have those discussions to make this work for everyone. Most politicians wouldn't fight on this, um, even though polling shows that the majority of people agree with what you're doing. I want to read a question from a Leger poll that was done in May. The poll asked, should schools have to let parents know about their child's desire to change gender or have new gender pronouns? 57% across the country said yes. Um, the lowest support was in BC, where it was 49% said yes. But in every demographic group, uh, age and gender, people said yes. Among households with kids living in them, it was 62%. And in Atlantic Canada, I don't have New Brunswick-specific numbers, but in Atlantic Canada, that support was 69%. So if that's the... Uh, if that's where the public is at, why aren't more politicians willing to stand up and, and say what is a very balanced approach that you've brought forward? Parents should know we need to protect children. Why don't more politicians stand up and do that? And why are you facing such a backlash in your own party over this? Well, Brian, it is it is a sensitive issue, and and many would prefer to you know, not have the tough discussions. I, I guess when I when I ran, I mean, I had an extensive career outside of politics. Um, so when I first ran for office, it's been 13 years ago now. Um, I, I ran with the with the with the concept uh, that we could deliver better services for the people in, in the province, but we could we could get better results by making real decisions. And and to me, there isn't anything more important than the foundational. Um, the foundational capability of our of our families and the support structure needed for kids to to develop, and and so when I think of big issues that have a lasting impact on our society and and on our on our province or on our nation, this is one of them. And I didn't kind of come here to for for a good time, I guess maybe uh, might be a phrase. I came here to make long term views of how we can improve our society and our province at the same time. So I'm not afraid to wade into these issues, but I know that it is extremely sensitive and, and many, and I understand it. I, I really do. And, and it's tough. It's tough when your colleagues, you know, say, I can't, I can't be involved. But the majority of our caucus did support this and they did support the need for parents to have a role. So that's what we're moving on is that we need to, to face this and have the good discussion and find a path forward because it's important to the future generation of our families and our kids. Um, just looking at, at the headlines, and many of them uh, taking you on on this come from CBC. One saying, Blaine Higgs, a visitor to the PC party, may soon be shown the door. Uh, that was a piece uh, posted on June 22nd. Day before, PC rebels say majority of riding presidents support ousting Higgs. You had the majority of MPs vote with you. Is there something else driving this attempted coup in, in, in your party's leadership? 
Yes, um, this this issue certainly uh, has provided a catalyst for some, but I would dare say that every, um, mostly everyone, I guess you could never say everyone, um, would certainly believe there's a role for parents here in this in this process. Uh, but there has been a bit of an agenda from from uh, kind of different pockets in the province that that would would like to see uh, maybe my uh, my position or, or leader of the party end. And, and I guess it, it, it comes down to my, my focus from the very beginning. I ran on a policy of province first, politics second. And, and I know I'm not a long-standing, you know, PC member as such. Um, but but I, I believe what's best for the province is also best for the party. And, and it means doing what's necessary in order to see our province thrive, to every part of our province thrive. And, and have people all grow with that and be part of a, large, a larger initiative. And, and that's been my goal from the beginning. So I've kind of gone into this job very focused on service delivery, on improved performance, better decision-making, getting into the tough issues, because for years they've been just kind of kicked down the road. And, and I guess so I am a, a different politician in that regard, but I just I need people to look at the big picture and say, okay, if you don't like my management style, I mean, I, I did come from a, a business management style, and I, I, I know that. And so if, if that's – and I apologize to my colleagues if, if that has, you know, been an issue that, that makes it difficult. But look at the bigger picture and what's actually happening in our province. And just pull back a little minute and say, wow, what, isn't it great to be part of a government that is facing the big challenges – and making the decisions that are that are best for our province as a whole in every corner. I, I ask for that sort of reflection and not for to make it personal uh, in any way. And that's the way I look at it. Yes, I have some significant um, detractors at this point, but, but I, I don't want to make it personal. I, I want to make it, let's stay focused on, on the big picture. Uh, you, you're right. You um, uh, come from a different political background including you used to be a liberal. We'll get into that in a little bit. But I also, after we take a quick break here, uh, I do want to talk to you, uh, Premier Higgs, about uh, fighting the federal government and fighting for jobs at places like Irving, which is threatening to pull up stakes, uh, which just seems unfathomable and it would be a huge economic blow for, for your province. So we'll talk about that when we come back. Uh, Premier Higgs, you do describe yourself as a different type of politician. Give me a, a, a quick elevator pitch. How did you come to be leader of the PC party? You started out early on as as a liberal, and then eventually uh, you went to a, a, a party that we don't have outside of New Brunswick, uh, the Confederation of Region Parties. Then you were in a, you know, a finance minister in a previous PC government. Uh, it, give us a, a short description of your, your political journey there. Okay, well, I guess in correction, you know, and yes, I would have voted in, in different directions over the years. My my dad was was uh, and mom were were certainly um, strong liberals, and I, I I joked around when I got elected as a as a conservative that I wondered if they actually voted for me. Now my mom <laughs> my mom said that yes, he did. And I said, you think Dad did? And 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 she said, well, I I had to help him in, in the in the booth there, so I'm I'm I know he did. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so anyway, uh, it was kind of a, a longstanding joke, but but I uh, I never ran or was a, um, a liberal per se. But regardless of all that, yes, I was involved uh, years ago and in a in a kind of an upstart party looking for changes in in our in our province that would be reflective of of moving forward and not be caught in the typical political kind of back and forth. Um, but then that was back. I was in my mid thirties then, and um, so I went back to work uh, for twenty years and and then retired from Irving Oil after a thirty three year career. Um, at the age of 56. So, and my goal at that time was I, I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to make use of what I'd learned to make better decisions using facts and analysis and, and criteria, building better service models for, for uh, delivery. Because in, in the situation working with Irving, our, our, our focus was always better results for customers because it, customers were paying our, 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 our bills mm-hmm. and our salaries. So I, I kind of took that model here and say, you know, the, the, the electorate are really our customers and, and we should be delivering better service. So why can't we all have a higher level of commitment to service delivery for the tax dollars that, that our citizens pay? So, so that has been the focus from the beginning. When I ran, we, I ran initially and I was finance minister for, for um, four years. That was 2010 to 14. I, I um, you know, we, we did find a lot of opportunities to help improve. And we were making improvements on, you know, some huge capital spending that was, was committed during the election, trying to get ourselves out of this hole. And then we lost the election in 14. And, and I'm, Brian, I would mention something that is so evident in the system. We continually put ourselves back every time we have a, a new government. So in our case, New Brunswick, every four years, there are all kinds of commitments and promises being made in order to get elected. And then you got to kind of dig your hole out, uh, dig out of the hole rather, in order to, to uh, actually get back on track financially. So when I ran for leadership in 2016, so I won my riding, but we were out of government. Uh, so I was in opposition. I had a lot of new people join the party, people that wanted to see a change in politics. And I mentioned earlier about province first, uh, politics second. Mm-hmm. Well, these were people that had, had never been involved in politics before, but wanted a new version of, of how do we manage our province. So I won the leadership in 2016. And then we had our first provincial election in 2018. So we had our first minority government in, in um, 100 years. But I, I only promised, uh, I think, like 80 million or maybe 100 million on a, on a uh, I forget the exact number, but a, a fraction of what my opponent was, was promising. Um, because I knew that if I, if I promised all of this spending, I could never get a physical, uh, their physical house in order. We were able to balance the budget the very first year in office. And this wasn't at a time when the economy was growing. Our, our economy was flat or stagnant at one and a half percent in that range. But we balanced the very first year in office. And and then we balanced ever since, the next five years. And and we, we managed our resources and we've reduced taxes. We've we've re- and both property taxes, income taxes, and we've raised the level of spending in healthcare, education to unprecedented levels, even in capital spending. But we continue to balance the budget and pay down the debt. So it is possible to manage the, the taxpayer dollars and get better results. And, and, and so I focused on that. But did I focus as much as I should have, uh, maybe in, in staying closer to the, the ridings and the presidents 
we we work with them in in case of what they needed in their writings in terms of the the, the uh, issues around the roads or schools or any of this stuff or healthcare. Um, but but I I probably didn't spend as much time in discussing you know directly with the individual party presidents and 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 the, the organization as such, even though the organization is doing better than historically ever has. So there lies the challenge. And I, you know, I, so I have focused on the, on the, the, the business of running the province and everyone will kind of can't argue that point. And, and maybe I've done that to my own detriment, but at the end of the day, regardless of what happens, this is an issue that I will stand or fall on. And I will hold my head proud because we are, we, if I, if I don't survive this, we're, our province is so much stronger today than it has been practically in its history, but uh, certainly in the, in the last multiple of years. You said um, that your view is uh, province first, party second, and whether it's province, country, what have you, I think that's always what the outlook should be. I don't think all politicians do that, though. And I look at what's happening in New Brunswick, where Irvine Oil is a major uh, employer, a major economic engine, and no matter how much you believe that we need to re- reduce dependence on fossil fuels, we're going to need it for quite some time. But our current prime minister has, is bringing in a suite of policies that are at the point where Irving Oil is saying, we're looking to sell or close up shop or do something, but it's just not feasible here. What was your reaction when you, you heard that and and the prime minister's uh, government say uh, to Irving and to everybody else, yeah, we're bringing in a new tax, but you can't pass it on to your customers. You've got to eat that. I mean, that's part of why Irving is saying, you know what, we got to get out of here. So do you feel like the prime minister with some of his policies is putting his his ideology ahead of what's good for the provinces or what's good for the country? Absolutely. There, there, there is um, not a recognition of the reality of, of what we'll be using for energy sources going forward. And, and it's like we're putting Canton in a bubble here and, and saying that, um, well, we're just not going to produce this sort of, um, you know, the fossil fuel generation that we've had over the year. We're just changing all that instantly. Um, and, and, and the fact is that if this refinery doesn't run, then we'll buy refined fuel from India or or the Middle East, or we'll buy it from you know other other countries that don't have anywhere close to the standards of operational excellence and and reduced emissions that that our own operations have here, not only in New Brunswick but in the industries across the country. So we've seen the exodus of of capital investment leave leave Alberta and Saskatchewan, and we're seeing it here right in this announcement, which which I am disappointed. Am I shocked given the policies? No, not shocked, but disappointed. Because the refinery has has been certainly on an average year would put three or four hundred million into the into the uh, operation and and but during the policies that have been put forward the policies that are really kind of killing energy investment in in uh, in New Brunswick and in Canada they they basically didn't recognize the standards of performance that the refinery had already spent money on. And if I give a little example of that going back to when ethanol became part of the, of the gasoline fuel standard and it was considered a, you know, a big environmental move at 10%, Irving Oil was one of, one of the first in the country to adopt that, if not the first. I think it was the first. 
And, and then, so then you have added on the carbon credits that are designed to have refiners or, you know, heavy industries to invest in new technology to reduce the emission standards. So not only do they not get credit from past, past uh, sort of environmental standards on which they would have been leading the country, but no, it doesn't matter. You're going to have to be 20% better than you were, whatever the number, better than you are right now. But they were already, let's say, 25 or 30% better than any other operation. But no recognition for that. And then to add insult to injury, the carbon tax um, or the carbon credit system to buy carbon credits. And you could you could put carbon credits against your production. And then, but the money had to be used for, make, let's say, hydrogen production or some other environmental improvement. But the refinery that's built on an export capability, uh, because it, it supplies the New England market, um, Boston and North or New York and North, I should say, um, the carbon the carbon credits did not apply to export barrels. That's 80% of the barrels coming out of this refinery do not qualify for the carbon credit. So that immediately puts them in a, a huge disadvantage. And you'd say, well, why would that be the case? Because basically you're in a situation that these barrels are just going across the border here in Maine, um, in, in, um, in, in, but yet they don't qualify. So are we in this bubble here in, in New Brunswick or in Canada? So, so the reality of the energy requirements that we need are just not being recognized. It's, it's kind of an artificial view of what's reality. We're all moving to a cleaner fuel, cleaner environment. I, I've visited, uh, you know, different companies when I was in Europe, looked at their energy plan. We're building an energy plan, and we're looking very seriously at how we, you know, can reduce our consumption. We could shut down four coal plants in the Atlantic region and do it within two years. And we could do that because we have a huge natural gas resource here. But the federal government is putting taxes upon taxes on that. That alone, by converting coal to natural gas, would reduce our emissions in the Atlantic Canada by 50%. I, I was talking with Premier Scott Moe, and he was telling me that they have a, a wind and solar plan for Saskatchewan. But as everyone knows with wind and solar, it doesn't work all the time. And so you need to have a baseload power that you can switch on and off easily. And and so he wants to add in a natural gas plant as backup for wind and solar. And even that he's getting a hard time from the federal government on. It seems to be ideology first, reality second. Absolutely. You know, and I, I've said there was a nuclear conference here, um, of course, looking at nuclear, looking at natural gas. There's a, you know, a company in Europe that, that's basically looking at expanding its natural gas presence, but it's doing it in order to shut down coal plants around the world because it'll have the big single biggest environmental uh, impact of anything else that's happening and do, doing it in timely in the quickest. You look at hydrogen, it's going to be uh, 10 years before we really have any significant volume. Some companies will say it's going to be out 25 years before there'll be any significant volume. SMRs are out 10 years. Um, you know, so you're basically saying, okay, what are the options? We, we had a situation here back in, um, it was in February of this winter, real cold snap, about 48 hours. It was a time when we had everything running, fortunately, in the province. Quebec shut us off on power, so we didn't get any from Quebec. First time in history, I think they've ever shut us off. They've turned us back a bit, but they actually said, no, we have nothing to supply you. And, and our windmills, because we had high winds, cold temperatures, 
and the windmills went from a production of about 160 megawatts down to less than 20. So they, their power output dropped like a stone because the wind was too strong and it was too cold and the windmills cannot function in that sort of environment. When people would have thought that, oh, the wind is the least blowing strongly, so that's good. Well, that's the reality. And I feel like, couldn't we step back, have a scientific analysis of how we can do what we can and in what timeline and not just have an overarching view that, well, in our case here, we, we build Atlantic Loop and all will be fine. Um, you know, that's the reality part of the discussion that I guess I would love to see happen. So we're not basing it on a political kind of um, belief, but basing it on the reality of supply and not handing over our energy source to, uh, to other countries that don't come anywhere near the standards that we already have. Premier Higgs, what, uh, what are you hearing from other premiers in your discussions with um, the stands you're taking, whether it's uh, on the school issue or, you know, in uh, your battle with, uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, trying to shut down one of your main industries? What are you hearing from your, your fellow premiers? Well, just as I described in relation to the, 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 the situation around shutting down traditional industries at a time when we, haven't, we don't have any options, um, they're all very concerned with that. This refinery, in this case, supplies all the Atlantic region. And, and so if this, this um, need is coming from elsewhere and we lose the, the, the economic impact, it'll be massive on New Brunswick, but it'll be massive on the, on the region. And how many jobs would that be? I mean, I'm, uh, full disclosure, my son, uh, eldest son, um, is currently waiting to get back in to work at the refinery. Um, and so I have a, a vested interest in making sure that my son has a job. But, uh, you know, he's an occasional worker in there, goes in and out with the union as, as things are needed. But there are people there full time. How many jobs would be lost if that refinery left? Oh, well, the refinery, I guess the refinery in uh, itself, we're probably talking in around the 2000. Um, but I mean, the, the, the jobs, the, the ramifications of, of that refinery and the economic impact into that refinery, I, I think there was an estimate given that it could impact around 20,000 jobs. That is just incredible. Yeah, it is. It is incredible. And especially when options are limited. So it, it is, my colleagues are all in the same vein there of, of, of the issues and the reality. Now we have the clean fuel standard that's being brought forward. And that's coming into effect July 1st. And, and so we, we think fuel's going to go up again, another 10 cents in New Brunswick or so. And, and um, you know, you, you say right today inflation is, is hitting us hard. We're, we're coming out with a housing policy to, to help get through the housing crisis because we've had such a population increase here, um, which is great news, but it's something we hadn't really experienced much of in the past. But, but my point, I guess, it's, it's, it's kind of like all of this is adding up on people in the province. All of this is adding up the high cost of living and, and what's going to offset that. So at what point do you take a pause and you take a break? And I think the difficulty is, is everyone wants to be a better um, advocate for climate change. And everyone wants to understand what can we do in our part and feel like, okay, well, if I'm paying more at the pump, uh, I'm doing my part. But when you look at the reality of what are going to be the big changes that are going to really move the bar so we're getting uh, improved results, then you put back and say, okay, here are the gaps, here's what the reality, and here's what we should be paying in order to survive this and balance it out going forward. We're just not putting all the factors in the equation and we're allowing it to become 
a, a, a very hollow political debate. And that's, that's the, the, the discouraging part for me. Being an engineer, um, I like to see the analysis. I like mm. to see the gaps. And I like to, to understand clearly what's going to fill those gaps. Premier Higgs, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. Listen on the app, your Alexa-enabled device. And, of course, give us a, a rating or leave a review and tell your friends about this by sharing it on social media. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.